Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our highlights podcast, with a premier crew selection of stories from across the week. I'm Anne McElvoy, head chef of Economist Radio. And on today's menu, a smartphone's the key to escaping poverty. The playwright David Mamet on his new comedy, inspired by Harvey Weinstein. And a tribute to the Syrian entrepreneur who made the best chocolates in the world. But we start with our cover story. Who is the most powerful man in tech? Not Zook, no, not Musk either. The new kid on the block is Masayoshi Son, founder of SoftBank. He's the brains behind the Vision Fund, which is busy buying into the world's most promising tech firms. Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia's thrusting crown prince, handed Mr Son $45 billion as part of his attempt to diversify the kingdom's economy. That great dollop of capital attracted more investors from Abu Dhabi, Apple and others. Add in SoftBank's own $28 billion of equity and Mr Son has a war chest of $100 billion. That far exceeds the $64 billion that all venture capital or VC funds raised globally in 2016. Mr Son's vision is of a radically different tech industry and he has the spending power to make it happen. Mr. Son is pumping money into frontier technologies, from robotics to the Internet of Things. Mr. Son is also bringing capital to places where it is still in fairly short supply, to India, to Southeast Asia, and to several European countries. He wants to create a virtual Silicon Valley in SoftBank, meaning a platform on which unicorns can offer each other contracts and advice, buy goods and services from each other, and even join forces. It remains to be seen just how far-sighted that vision is, or whether it could yet prove some sort of mirage. He has notched up some triumphs in his career, including an early bet on Alibaba. But his dot-com era investments mean he is also the person to have lost more money than anyone else in history. The money is being shoveled out almost as fast as it was taken in. This combination of gargantuanism, grandiosity and guaranteed payouts may end up in financial disaster. Even so, we argued, the Silicon Valley giants are right to be rattled. The fund offers founders of startups an alternative to cashing out to the likes of Google, Facebook and Amazon. Its massive checkbook also gives those entrepreneurs a better shot at competing with the titans. The fund may perform a similar function in China – where nearly half of all unicorns are by now backed by one of the country's four tech giants, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent or JD.com. To find out how Mr Son's $100 billion bet will shape the future of tech companies and consumers alike, read the briefing in this week's Economist. And if you like our style, why not try a subscription? Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. 
Far from the dealings of venture capitalists, it's easy to forget that nearly a quarter of the world's population doesn't even have a bank account. In Pakistan, that figure is closer to three quarters. On our Money Talks podcast, Kasif Shahid of Finja, a Pakistani fintech company, revealed the key to closing the gap. You know, we believe that if people don't have smartphones, then they continue to belong to what we call the have-nots. So the trick is to go out and construct products where if people don't have a smartphone, then the initial wallet offer is bundled with a smartphone and people go out and spread the product, make enough money and pay for the smartphone as their first loan. And now they have a digital identity and a financial identity, which is the baseline for you to start to climb up the opportunity pyramid. That's the greatest equalizer in our way. Many of these mobile banking services are free. Customers do pay, but with their data. The problem is the algorithms that sort that data can be biased. Investigative reporter Julia Angwin told Babbage, our science and tech show, about the algorithm behind America's criminal risk score. This algorithm basically assigns a score to every person who's arrested in a jurisdiction in Florida. And this software is used across the United States. And these people are given different amounts of bail or pretrial release time based on this algorithm. And the algorithm really attempts to predict if they're going to commit a future crime within the next two years. So we actually went and obtained all the data about 18,000 people who were scored on this algorithm. And then we looked at whether they went on to commit a future crime during the next two years. And we found that the black defendants were 45% more likely to get a higher risk score, even when they had the same circumstances as a white defendant. Algorithms and AI are making more and more decisions for humans, but they remain limited in the physical world. A few weeks ago, after a pair of AI robots took 20 minutes to build a simple IKEA chair, we reported with glee that humans still had the edge, at least in DIY. Well, this week, Andrew Whitehair of Cleveland wrote in to say he wasn't so sure. Instead, it evokes a dystopian future where artificially intelligent computers serve as the world's thought leaders and problem solvers, while their human serfs toil away in physical tasks. Still every cloud. Perhaps I should learn to welcome our new computer overlords, because being relieved of stressful cognitive tasks will leave me more time to enjoy The Economist. Such good taste. And you can write to us with your take on any of the stories you've heard at radio at economist.com. We're also on Twitter at Economist Radio. But if you're allergic to Twitter and leery of email, you're not alone. Our latest guest on The Economist Asks, our chat show, still uses a typewriter. David Mamet is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of plays and films, including Oliana, Glengarry Glen Ross and The Untouchables. And he's just written a new drama, inspired by Harvey Weinstein. So I've been watching all of this this Me Too movement with... Um as all of us have, a, a great deal of interest. And then the Harvey thing happened, and I, I know him a little bit, I did a little bit of business with him. I thought, well, okay, here's a pretty good subject for what, what finally is uh, a comedy. Because that's one of the ways we deal with the things that can't be addressed rationally. We can deal with them in two ways. We can deal with them with tragedy and say, well, 
That's the human condition. We're no good and we end up destroying each other, although we try. And we can deal with comedy saying, well, that's the human good condition. We, we're no good and we end up destroying each other. But once in a while, you got to step back and, and say, it's all too goddamn funny. Let's see if his audiences agree. You can hear more Mamet speak on gun ownership, Hollywood hypocrisy and the battle of the sexes by subscribing to Economist Radio wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're in there, do give us a rating. You might just make our day. If a new Mamet play doesn't promise quite enough glitter for you, perhaps you've got your fill watching the Eurovision Song Contest at the weekend. For the uninitiated, it's an annual extravagance of sequins, big hair and national grudges. And as a piece in our Europe section warned, just don't tune in hoping for an antidote to politics. Last year, Russia withdrew after the host Ukraine denied entry to its contestant, who had performed in Crimea after Russia had invaded and annexed the region in 2014. In 2015, Armenia's lyrics marked 100 years since the massacre of 1.5 million people, which its neighbours Turkey and Azerbaijan refused to recognise as genocide. Turkey has boycotted the event since 2013 in protest against the automatic qualification to the final round enjoyed by the Big Five, Germany, Britain, France, Spain and Italy. The key to Eurovision glory is not song quality, but how well you get on with your neighbours, as a quick listen to previous winners will prove. Collusion among voting blocs is on the rise. In the past 20 years, the Nordic bloc has won seven times, former Soviet states six times. The Big Five, meanwhile, have rarely cooperated and often been shunned by everybody else. Their contestants have won only once. They have finished last in the final nine times. Finally facing their Waterloo, as ABBA so rightly observed back in 1974. And finally, this week's obituary was the portrait of a man who created sweetness under the bitterest of circumstances, Syria's premier chocolatier. Bassam Graoui's workers made candied fruits so jewel-like that they were packed in silver boxes. Larger fruits were stuffed with Aleppian pistachios and dipped in dark chocolate. Almonds from Ghouta were ground and blended with chocolate for ganache or flavoured with rose water to make marzipan roses. By the end of the 1930s, Graoui chocolate was sold in Harrods. Mr. Graoui supplied the Queen of England and Jacques Chirac when President of France. He knew the sour taste of failure all too well. In 1961, when the country was in brief union with Egypt, Nasser nationalised its factories and trading companies, including his father's. In 1965, the Ba'ath regime did the same. He remembered his mother crying. Again, they had lost everything. For decades, the business was reduced to one small shop in Damascus. Bassam's interest, always on a bigger scale, did not flower until 1996, when Syria began reopening to the world. Then, in 2011, war came. But he had a talent for reinvention. He crafted a new life for his family and his sweets in Hungary. The country was now to be his chocolate empire. Special lines were devised for his new clientele, a milk chocolate Cur de Budapest, and hand-painted pralines as a tribute to Queen Sisi of Austria-Hungary. His flagship shop was inspired by a Cartier boutique in Paris, and was by the same designer. But those scents of cardamom and cinnamon, those trays of glistening candied fruits, recalled the markets of Damascus and the orchards of Ghouta. 
That's all we've got time for in this week's tasting menu. But remember, you can find more of the stories we've featured here online at economist.com. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist. 